Good morning. Going to continue on through the book of Mark. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, the Bethphage of Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Um, If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus um, had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Lord or of our father David. Blessed, or, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Three weeks ago, Pastor Andy uh, introduced us to this idea of false expectations, uh, talking about the disciples as they're heading to Jerusalem and having false expectations of what the kingdom was going to be like. Two weeks ago, Pastor, Pastor Brent showed us what to do when we, we respond unbiblically to false expectations. Uh, repent, renew your mind, think correct thoughts, and uh, replace replace uh, actions. Last week, we saw that seeing the world in the way God sees the world helps correct our false expectations. We saw that, ironically, through a blind man that was able to see clearer than any of the disciples could see. Today, I want to continue in this idea of false expectations because the scripture is, is hitting the subject hard in this portion of Mark I want, to, I want to look at how false expectations of earthly circumstances can blind us to the truth. Again, false expectations of earthly circumstances can blind us to the truth. And I want to kind of do this by looking at the nation of Israel as a whole. Right? This passage that we just read um, is a week before the cross, a little less than a week before the cross. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, right? This is the start of the Passover week. It's one of the festivals for the Jews that they traveled to Jerusalem, meaning there were thousands upon thousands of Jews in Jerusalem in this um, time, in this week. And then Israel, through all those thousands of Jews, had a false coronation of, of Jesus, a false crowning of Jesus, as we just read. But who is Israel? Where did they come from, and how did they get to this moment in time right here? Well, it starts all the way back with Abraham. It starts with one man where God came to this man that was living in a pagan um, family and said that he was going to give him a great nation, that he was going to take his family and multiply his family so that they would be so big that they would be a great nation, that he would give them a land, this nation of people, and that they would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So Abraham had a son, his son had a son, and that son had 12 sons. And here's one family that got through circumstances in Egypt, right? And they grew and grew and grew as Egypt protected them. And they grew and grew and grew until one day that God pulled this great nation now from one family to a great nation out of Egypt. And pulling them out of Egypt, this is what they were celebrating in the time that Jesus is last week, the Passover. Um, Right after the Passover, right after the the Israelites got pulled out of Egypt, they spent 40 years in the wilderness. And they complained and and, um, grumbled during this time. And I wanted to ask a question. Why did they spend so much time in the wilderness? Sin. Sin. 
The wilderness really wasn't the problem. Sin was the problem. We follow along this nation to Joshua. Uh, Joshua is, the book of Joshua enters into the promised land. They take over the promised land. They're now great in size. They are in the promised land. Then we get to this, this book of Judges, which for a lot of us is a strange book. And if you read through the Bible, you get to Judges. And a lot of people come up to me and I just don't understand this book. Well, there's these cycles that we see in Judges. Right? A new generation comes of Israelites. This new generation sins and starts worshiping false gods or they do what's right in their own eyes. And because of their sin, God sends countries to oppress the Israelites. Israel, in the oppression, is distressed. They cry out to God. God raises up judges and saves saves them. And this is a cycle that keeps happening through the whole entire book. And my question for you is, what's the main point of judges? If you understand the main point, you get the book. And I think the point is that the foreign countries aren't the problem. God shows in the book of Judges he has complete and utter control of these foreign countries. The problem is Israel's sin. A sinful heart. We get to the book of Ruth and First and Second Samuel. In the very beginning of First Samuel, we see that Israel cries out for a king. They say, if we only had a king. What they're saying there is, God, if you would only change our circumstances. We, we had the right king. We could set up an army and protect ourselves from these other nations. Right? Side note, as I was thinking about this, and how many times have we said, you know, if we only had a Republican in the office... If we only had uh, the right government, right, then our nation would be all right. That wasn't the problem with Israel, and it's not the problem with our nation either. So God gave him a king, Saul, who was a terrible king. David, who was a good king. Then Solomon. And this was the high point of Israel's history. They were honored, wealthy. They had rest. From all the other nations. And they were a powerful, respected nation. People from all over would come just to talk to Solomon. Circumstances were good. Yet Solomon's heart drifted. Started worshiping wealth and women. Said he had a thousand wives. And because of these thousand wives, and he had so much worth in these, in these wives that they pulled his heart away from worshiping God alone. And he started worshiping false gods and setting up idols. And so God promises Solomon that he was going to divide Israel. And we get the first and second kings, and we see king after king doing evil, worshiping false gods, sinning, and God letting other nations come in and oppress Israel to the point of the end of second kings where they finally get pulled out of the promised land. We get to the New Testament, and not much has changed. Right? There's a nation that's in control of Israel, right? The Israelites are oppressed in some senses to the Romans. And here's the Jewish mindset. And the reason why I wanted to go back through the history of Israel real quickly is because this is what they were thinking. Our problem is the circumstances that we're in. Our problems are the Romans, the Gentiles, and these other nations. If we can just get rid of them, we'll be good. And so they look forward to this Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. They look forward to this Messiah that they thought was going to come in and wipe out the Romans. That was going to be a warrior Messiah that was going to solve all their bad circumstances. But what was the real problem? What has always been the real problem for Israel? Their sin. Their sin. And I'm convinced that one of Satan's game plans is to do this. He wants you to be so focused on outside circumstances that you are blinded to the real problem, which is your sinful heart. Outside circumstances is the same thing as as false expectations of outside circumstances. He wants you to be so focused on your expectations of what this world is supposed to be like that you never look inward. If I only had a job, 
uh, if my marriage was, was if, if it only went, if it was going well, or if I can only get out of my marriage, if, I, if my children would just obey me, if I had a car, if I had a house, whatever it is, then life would be good. I think Satan wants you so focused on that that you never look inward. And I see this in one of Satan's temptations. Right? You don't have to turn there, but just listen to uh, Matthew 4, 8 through 9. This is one of the three temptations. And the devil took him, who is Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to, to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. What Satan is saying here, let's think about this. He's saying, you follow and worship your father, you're going to the cross. You're going to the cross. You're going to live a life that's way beneath your value. And you're going to the cross. You follow me, I'll give you a kingdom. Right? All your followers will be part of your kingdom. You'll be rich, you'll be powerful. Circumstances will be good. But without the cross, where does that leave us? Lost, hopeless, destined for hell, no matter how good the circumstances are on this earth. See, here's the deal. The devil hates you. The devil hates all of us. And if he can get you to focus on outside circumstances, then he can blind you to the real problem, which is your sinful heart. And the disciples struggled with this. And this is why we've been so focused on false expectations for the last four weeks. Because we're seeing the disciples are there on their way to Jerusalem and struggling with their false expectations that Jesus is going to bring them a kingdom and make them rich and powerful and wealthy. And that's all they can think about. They had no idea that the real problem is themselves, their heart. that's sinful. They're blinded. And I honestly think that's exactly why Mark talks about two blind men getting healed before this passage, before Jesus enters Jerusalem. Because he's saying, Mark, who is getting most of his information from Peter, Peter, I think, realized that the, the healing of the blind men was a parable of them. That they were blind. They had no idea what was going to happen. Mark, why don't you guys turn to, for me, Mark 8, 27 to 30. Because I want to... I want to see this in, in the, the disciples. How blinded they, they truly were. And honestly, as we see Jesus enter into Jerusalem, all of the Israelites were so blinded. Mark eight twenty seven through 30, Jesus comes to the disciples. Let me just paraphrase for you. and says, who do people say that I am? And people are saying, a prophet, Elijah, John the Baptist. Because none of these people can deny Jesus' miracles. So he has to be from God somehow. But no one was bold enough to say he's the Messiah. Because he's not acting like what they thought the Messiah would act like. He's shown no aggression to this point. He's only healed and helped. They were looking for a warrior Messiah, so they thought maybe he's just the forerunner like John was for him. But then he turns to the disciples and says, who do you say that I am? Peter, boldly, you're the Christ, Messiah. You're the one that the whole Old Testament has been pointing to. You're the man. And Jesus turns and says, you got it. Blessed are you, Peter. You, You understand I am the Messiah, but you don't see completely. And that's why I think the very next verse is there in verse 31, 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Jesus was known for speaking almost unclearly, right, in parables. He spoke that way on purpose, but not about this. He grabbed the disciples and and said plainly to them, guys, listen, listen to this. Suffer many things. Rejected by elders and chief priests and scribes. Be killed. 
and after three days, rise again. Right? And we see that the false expectations of, of a kingdom blind Peter, because look at what Peter does right after this in verse second part of verse 32. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You're wrong, Jesus. You set up a kingdom. The Messiah gets rid of the Romans and sets up a kingdom. What, what was the motivation of Peter's heart? If you are king and we are your best friends, we become rich, become powerful, become important. You don't, you don't die. You don't suffer. That's not part of the deal, Jesus. And look what Jesus said to him, verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. This is from Satan. Peter, this is what Satan wants, is so consumed with earthly circumstances that he didn't see that his real problem was sin. And Jesus came to address the real problem. Verse 33, second part of verse 33. For you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. Just looking at this earthly, looking at the earthly circumstances, and it's blinding you, Peter. And then Jesus takes it one step further. Not only are circumstances not going to get better for you, Peter, but, verse 34, and calling the crowd to him, with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Peter's circumstances not only are not going to get better, they're going to get harder. They're going to get harder. And this is what Jesus is telling them. My goal is not to make your life comfortable. My goal is to save your life. To save your life. And this is why we've been in these passages for so long. If you look at the context, right? Chapters 9 through 10 of Mark. After Jesus tells them he's the Christ, he starts heading towards Jerusalem. And three times, three times he tells them that he's going to suffer many things, die, be rejected, and rise again. And all three times, at least the second two times, right after Jesus says that, if you look at the headings, they're arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They're completely blind. They don't get it. And Jesus, as he's heading to Jerusalem, as he's heading to the cross, is telling them and telling them and telling them. And we start in chapter 11, verse 1. This starts the last few days of Jesus' life. Um, it's either Palm Sunday or Monday. I haven't studied that, so I don't know exactly um, which one I fall, which camp I fall into there. Um, but I have a lot of people that think this was actually Monday, not Sunday. But it's the last few days of Jesus' life either way. Um, and Jesus is, is going to Jerusalem to deal with the real issue. He's going to Jerusalem to deal with the real problem. Context, as I mentioned before, this is Passover week. Okay? This is a start to the Passover week, meaning thousands upon thousands of Jews. This is one of the festivals um, that the Jews travel from all over the world back to Jerusalem. I've heard estimates of two million Jews were in Jerusalem, those that are, lived there and those that have came. But thousands upon thousands of Jews are there. Jesus, just before this entering into Jerusalem, has just raised Lazarus from the dead. And that is, John tells us, has gone through all of Jerusalem. People have been talking about it. He's entered Jerusalem, and this is the week before his crucifixion. And there's three points that I want to um, look at today. The first one is the mission of Jesus. The mission of Jesus the misunderstanding of man and the movement toward the real problem. The movement toward the real problem. So we'll start with the mission of Jesus. If you look at Mark 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, 
to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went and away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their coats on it, and he sat on it. I want to look at that first verse one more time where it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. This is probably about two miles out of Jerusalem. Okay, two miles out of Jerusalem. My question is, I'm reading through this, um, and I've been taught that one of the, the best things you can do in studying the Bible is just ask questions. Ask questions. And my question is, why a donkey? Why a donkey? I mean, they obviously didn't need one. They're two miles out, and these guys walk everywhere. Um, they can make the two-mile hike to Jerusalem. Why get a donkey? Well, as I searched this, this question, I found three answers that I believe to be satisfying. The first is to show Jesus knew what was going to happen. To show Jesus knew what was going to happen. Jesus is 100% human and at the same time 100% divine. 100% God. And his divinity is shown in this passage. He knows all. He sees all. And he knows exactly what he's doing and where he's going. I mean, look at the details. Verse 2. And he said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat, untied and bring it. I mean, these are exact details. Right? And I think as the disciples were looking back at this after the crucifixion, it was comforting. You know what? Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus knew what he was doing. Verse 3, if anyone says to you, what are you doing, uh, or why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. I mean, he knew exactly what was going to happen. He sends these disciples into um, the village. This guy's going to say, hey, why are you taking my donkey? And Jesus says, hey, say the Lord has need of it. This guy knows who Jesus is. Jesus has spent some time in this, in this town, and this guy was probably like, yeah, if Jesus needs it, take it. And he says, hey, we'll bring it back immediately after we're done with it. So Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. And I want to make this clear. I don't think Jesus, I know Jesus was not surprised at all of the reaction he was going to get when he entered into Jerusalem. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And he came for that reason. Second reason, a donkey. A donkey symbolized the reason why Jesus came to Jerusalem. Why a donkey? Well, in this culture, donkeys were ridden by kings in times of peace. In battle, they would ride a horse or a chariot. In times of peace, they'd ride a donkey. And on top of that, this is a colt in verse 2, it says, which no one had ever sat. It almost seems like this donkey was just meant for Jesus to ride. Symbolizing peace, the peace that Jesus was about to bring between God and man. Let me say this, if Jesus came in his first coming on a horse, we would be in trouble. Because that means he came to battle. He came to destroy his enemies, and it's very clear in the Bible, without Jesus' death on the cross, we are his enemies. We were his enemies. Romans 5, 8 through 10 says this, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, right? while we were still sinners, I hope you guys are seeing that with the disciples and the people around Jesus, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, 
For if while we were enemies, before Jesus' first coming, we were enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son. The death brought reconciliation, which changed us from enemies to children of God. So before the cross, we were enemies of God, and Jesus is riding a donkey, thankfully, to bring peace, not war. And not peace between man and man, because if that was the case, he failed. Right? Because 2,000 years of, of history after Christ has been, been a bloody 2,000 years. No, he came to bring peace between God and man. God and man. So it symbolized why he came and what his mission was. But the third reason, and I think this is probably the most important reason, although they're all kind of tied together, is fulfillment of prophecy. Fulfillment of prophecy. Don't turn there, but this is fulfilling a prophecy in Zechariah 9, 9, chapter 9, verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughters, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. Full of a donkey. This was written 500 years before Jesus came to the earth, and I think this is here to show us that God, right, Jesus, the Father, the whole Trinity, was not surprised in what was about to happen. And God, throughout the whole Old Testament, was pointing to this happening Jesus going to Jerusalem, Jesus going to the cross. 700 years before Jesus came to this earth, Isaiah wrote um, Isaiah 53, talking about the suffering servant. And if you didn't know it was Isaiah, and I got up here and started reading Isaiah 53, you would say, hey, that is from the New Testament. That has to be after the cross, because it's it's talking about Jesus. God knew what his Messiah would be like. You go to Psalms 22, a thousand years before Jesus come, and David's talking about himself there as a type of Christ, pointing to Christ. And you read that, it starts off, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he says, Why have you pierced my hands and feet? A thousand years before Christ. God is in control. He's not reacting. He was not surprised. And you go all the way back to Genesis 3. A seed is coming that will crush Satan's head. Although Satan will bruise his heel. He's talking about the cross. And the seed that will come one day. And the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But if you look at Zechariah 9, verse 9 one, one more time. It says, and you don't have to turn there, just listen. Behold, your king is coming to you. This is your king, Israel. He's coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, humble, not with force, gentle, humble, meek. He's the king that has come to bring peace, to bring peace, right? Jesus' mission was the cross. Jesus knew it. He wasn't surprised. God wasn't surprised. He was going to the cross at this point, even though the disciples and no one else could see it could see it. And this brings us to the second point. The misunderstanding of man. Okay. I stuck with the M's. Brent made me. Um, They teach me the same thing in seminary. You guys can memorize the points. um, Although I just don't have the vocabulary Brent has. So I'm like, where'd that word come from? The misunderstanding of man fits this good. But misunderstanding leads to false expectations, which we have been talking about the last four weeks. And false expectations are misunderstandings. So this can be the false expectations of man, too. But I think misunderstanding of man fits this portion of Scripture. Verse 8. And many spread their coats on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, 
Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Who are these people? Who was this crowd? Again, this is the Passover. Thousands of Jews from all over the world, the Israelites, were all back in Israel. They just heard about Lazarus. I said John tells us that they were, they were amazed about that, and so they're awaiting for this miracle worker, this man that everyone has heard about. And they throw down their coats. What's that mean? Well, this is what one commentator said about that. It was an ancient custom for citizens to throw their garments in the road for their king to ride over, symbolizing their respect um, their respect for him, and their submission to his authority. It was to say, we place ourselves at your feet, even to walk over us if necessary. Right? Here's my question for you guys. Where were these people a week later? Spitting on him? Shouting, crucify him. Why? A wrong understanding. Wrong understanding. Just as a side note, um, we live in a confusing culture. Uh, we live in a postmodern culture. And one of the tenets of a postmodern culture says that truth is not important. Truth is not important. It says we just need to tolerate over truth. This has seeped into the church, the culture. And has made us say that theology and doctrine isn't important. The word theology means theos, God, ology, the study of. The study of God isn't important. Doctrine is important. Theology is important. Because look at this. This this passage blows me away. Look Look at verse 9 again. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord... Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. You know what these people were saying? Son of David, which is a Messiah term pointing back to the son that will be king one day. So they were saying king. They were saying you are our Lord. Hosanna is a word that means save us. Jesus they were saying, is their Lord and Savior. You are Lord and Savior. Man, if we heard someone say that, we'd be like, you get it. You get it. Unless they have the wrong doctrine of Lord and Savior. Right? Because what did they mean? They were crucifying him a week later, so, so something's up. When they said Lord, they mean, as long as you give us what we want. Lord, as long as you give us a kingdom. Lord, as long as you destroy the Romans. And Savior, save us from the Romans. Save us from our bad circumstances. Outside circumstances. What does the Bible mean? What do we mean when we say Lord and Savior? Lord... No matter what. Lord, no matter what. Because Jesus is so valuable to us that we would trade anything for him. So whatever you say, Lord, no matter what, we'll follow you. We love you that much. Savior, not from outside circumstances, not from Romans, but from our sinful heart. Savior from sin. And, it, and, and Matthew adds, this is an important, this is an important um, uh, passage in the scriptures because all four Gospels talk about it. And usually when all four Gospels talk about it, it's telling you, when they all give testimony to it, they're, it's telling you that it's an important passage. And um, so Matthew talks about this account, and he adds a little bit to the crowd and the fickleness of the crowd. Because here they are shouting, Lord and Savior, and then Matthew right after Jesus enters into Jerusalem right after it makes it sound like 
in Matthew 21.10, you don't turn there, just, just listen. It says this, And when he entered Jerusalem, after they were shouting for him, Lord and Savior, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? Who is this? They were just shouting, Lord and Savior, putting cloaks down, saying, We'll follow you anywhere. And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Right? Just before they were saying, Messiah... Now they're saying, you know, he's just a prophet. He's just a prophet. You can't deny his miracles, but he's not attacking the Romans. He should be getting us going. Right? These, these people were so confused. This is what uh, um, John MacArthur said about this portion of scriptures. Uh, they heard Jesus' message. They attested to his miracles. And they even acknowledged his divinity. But they rejected his saviorhood and lordship. They were totally earthbound, materialistic, and self-satisfied. They were interested only in the kingdom of this world and not the kingdom of heaven. They would have, had, they would have accepted Jesus as their earthly king, but they would not have him as their heavenly king. Right? And when we started, I said, this is Satan's game plan. Have Israel so focused on outside circumstances that they are blinded to their real problem, a simple heart. This is the whole Old Testament. False expectations can blind people to the true gospel. Misunderstandings. So this leads us to the last point. And uh, again, sticking with the M theme. The movement toward the real problem. And as I was going through this, it actually fits this portion of Scripture perfectly, I feel like. The movement toward the real problem. Look at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. I'd say it's a weird way to end this passage. Such an excitement time, this coronation of, of Jesus, this false coronation of Jesus. To just have this verse here, what was Mark saying? Well, I think it's a movement toward the real problem. Let me paint the picture here. Okay? Just think about this. Try to put yourself in Jerusalem in this time period, how exciting this would be. Jews thought the Messiah was coming any moment. They thought he was going to be this braveheart Messiah, this warrior Messiah that was going to come and rescue them from the Romans. They're celebrating Passover. What was Passover? It was a time when God pulled Israel out of a nation that was oppressing them and destroyed the most powerful army in the world through the parting of the Red Sea and destroying them through the letting the waters flood over this army. There's two million Jews in one location. And if you want to centralize an attack, this is the week. And here comes this man that's doing ridiculous miracles. That I don't think we give Jesus enough credit for the miracles he, he's done. The feeding of the 5,000 was 5,000 men. It was more like 20,000 people. He, him and the disciples were like wiping out disease in the whole outer areas. And he just raised someone from the dead. And this is the time. We're going to take over the Romans. We are going, he's going to rally the troops, all, all two million of us, and we're attacking the Romans. The very next day, look at verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he, Jesus, entered the temple and began driving out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He doesn't attack the Romans. He attacks the heart of Israel, the temple. I mean, think of how scandalous that would be. He attacks the most prideful thing of Israel, the temple. And within, within the nation, within the capital, right in the center. Jesus came to address the real issue, which was the sin of Israel. Not the outside circumstances. And that's why I think Mark 11.11 is a movement toward the real problem. Israel's sin. 
you look at 11 again, it says he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. So right after this coronation, false coronation, he goes into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, he sees all the sin and the nastiness of Israel. As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, he was going to address the real issue. So what's the takeaway of this, this passage? What is the, the application that we get from this? I have three, three main things. Um, I think Satan's game plan in all of our lives is he wants you to be so focused on outside circumstances that you are blinded to the real problem, which is our sinful hearts. You should wake up every morning and ask, what is my heart worshiping this morning that's not God? What is my heart worshiping this morning that's not God? I don't want to give too much credit to Satan. It's It's our simple hearts that are desiring. Two, which fits right into number one, False expectations of earthly circumstances. You expect this life to be a certain way. False expectations of earthly circumstances can blind Christians to the real problem, a simple heart. Right? We think when we become Christians, things are going to be different circumstantially, and we have expectations of that. can blind us to the real problem, which is a simple heart. How many times have we said, if I only had dot, 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 instead of what is going on in here? What is going on in here? You can fill, that, fill in that blank, if I only had a job, if I only had, again, I said good marriage, if I only was out of my marriage. Um, instead of going... What is the real issue? What is going on in here? And then looking out, right? Starting here and then looking out. You know what? I love our church. I really do. And this morning and right now, I feel so comfortable up here because I just know all you guys and I love you guys. And I know even if I said something dumb, you guys would come up to me and give me a hug. <laughs> and I think we have a good church. I really do. Uh, especially when I talk to other pastors and other people in seminary. And for all the problems that we have here at Country Oaks, man, we, we have a good church. But could you imagine what our church would be like is if in every instance something happens, we first said, wait, what's going on in here before I, I address the issue? When someone hurts you, what's going on here first? All right, now I'm going to address the issue. And that would take us from where we're at to some other level. Third, and this is super important, guys, um, false expectations of earthly circumstances can blind people, non-Christians, from hearing the true gospel. This is the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel going out, saying you become a Christian, God's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and you're going to prosper. And you have these expectations, and you don't realize, you know what, the real problem is me, my sinful heart, and I need a Savior. We need to make sure as we, we are sharing the gospel that we're sharing the gospel when we say Lord, it's no matter what. No matter what. And when we say Savior, it's, it's saved from God's wrath towards our sinful heart. God has saved us. Jesus has saved us from God's wrath towards our sinful heart. And we need to make that clear. Because these people were, were believing in a false gospel when they were saying Lord and Savior. I want to end um, this time as we've been going through this series, and I've just been sitting, listening to Pastor Andy and uh, Pastor Brent talk, um, I ask myself a question. I try to ask honest questions, and, and you know, I tell the kids, too, the junior hires and high schools, if you ask respectfully, ask. That's good. Ask questions. We'll, we'll examine it together. I'm, I'm not promising I know the answer, but I'll, I'll help you find it. Um, because I've been listening to these sermons on false expectations, right? I've asked myself, why follow Christ if he's not going to make my circumstances better? 
I think it's an honest question. Why follow Christ if he's not going to make my circumstances better? And I came up with four reasons. Right? The first reason, following Christ brings salvation from the wrath of God. I think that's the most important. I think we know that. Following, following Christ brings salvation from God's wrath. He brought peace. And if we put our faith in the cross... That how he brought peace was God's wrath was poured out on him, the wrath that we deserved. And instead, God looks at us as if we lived Christ's life, and we put our faith in that. You'll have salvation from that wrath, because Jesus paid for it. So following Christ brings salvation from the wrath of God. But let's look at some other reasons, too. Uh, Number two, and I don't think we get this one enough. We say uh, invitation. It's not an invitation. It's a command. Mark 1.15 says this, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's, a, that's imperatives, not indicatives. It's a command by God. Repent and believe in the gospel. To not believe in the gospel, to not have faith, is a sin. So it's a command. Three. And this is a point that I try to drive home. I know that a lot of, um, as you live life, you realize this one. But when you're junior high or in high school, you need to be taught this one. God commands you not to sin because it's what's best for you. Right? Following Christ is what's best for you. He says, don't do this because it's going to lead to death and destruction. And pain it might bring temporary pleasure, but in the long run, it's going to bring destruction. God is not some cosmic killjoy. He's a joy promoter. He wants us to be full of joy, and that's why he says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, because it will rob you of your joy. And the fourth reason, which I, I, it fits right into this, God's glory is the only object that brings true joy. God's glory is the only object that brings true joy. Not riches, not power, not a perfect marriage, not obedient children, not health, not a comfortable life. God's glory. You guys turn with me. Pastor Andy has quoted this parable many times. It's my favorite parable. It's in Matthew uh, 13. Verse 44, it's probably my favorite parable, I always say, because it's the shortest parable, and I can understand it. Um, but God's glory is the only object that brings true joy, and this, this parable captures this. The kingdom of heaven, let me just stop right there. It says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure, okay? Stop right there. The kingdom of heaven, the reason why the kingdom of heaven is like treasure, the reason why the kingdom of heaven is awesome is because God is there. His glory is there. That's why the kingdom of heaven is so valuable. It's God's glory that's valuable. And it's like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, I love that that phrase is a perfect parable. Then in his joy, because he knows how valuable that treasure is. He knows how valuable God's glory is. In his joy, he goes and sells all. Everything. Sell my whole life away. Because God's glory, that treasure, is worth more, way more, so much more that it's joy-filled to sell everything to receive the treasure. And he goes and buys a field so he can get that treasure. Let me just throw this in here. I think sells all represent suffering. There's a, there's a, a bit of suffering if you sell everything that you have, and I think that that's the point. If suffering and bad circumstances brings me closer to the fountainhead, as Pastor Andy would say, to joy, to the real treasure, God's glory, then bring it on, right? And this is what this guy is saying. And I believe that God's glory is the only object that brings true joy, true joy. And so my question to you guys this morning is, is God your treasure is God your treasure? I wake up every morning and ask myself that. Is God my treasure? When we say worship, 
That word comes from worth. Is God worth more to me than anything else on this earth? So much more that I would sell anything to have that treasure. And I have two quotes there, or two sentences that I wrote out that I think will end the sermon with. You can have all the suffering and bad circumstances this world has to offer, but if you are close to God's glory, you will be filled with joy and peace through the suffering. It's not that the suffering is easy. Suffering's hard. But you'll be filled with a, a, a peace and joy through it. And this is what's so attractive about the church. When people are actually doing this, you see these people that are just filled with joy no matter what. And you say, I want that. What do they have? I want it so badly. They treasure God more than anything. And so if God takes something out, as long as they're close to God, that's all that matters. This is Paul. And no one suffered more than Paul. And this guy, by the time he gets to the prison in Rome where he writes Philippians, he had to have been so scarred up from getting stoned, getting whipped, getting beaten to the point where they thought he was dead. I mean, his whole body would have been just scarred. And he's in prison, and he was wealthy, he was honored, and he lost all of that when he became a Christian and had bad circumstances his whole entire life. And then he writes the book of Philippians, and every other word is joy. <laughs> every other word is joy, and he's probably the most joyful guy in the world because he was close to God. On the other side of that coin, you can have everything this world has to offer, but if you don't have a relationship with God, it will not satisfy. This is the rich young ruler who had everything, was rich and came to Jesus and says, I lack something. I don't know what it is. What must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And he walked away from Jesus sorrowful. And he still had everything. So my question, is God your treasure? Or are you blinded to God's value because you're so focused on outside circumstances. Let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, help us see how valuable you are. God, help us find our joy in you. And when we find joy in other things than you, it's because of you that we find joy in it, Lord. Help us find worth in you. Help us understand how much you are truly worth so that we do truly worship you. God, and help us when we worship other than you and put things over you. God, reveal it to us because our hearts trick us. Lord, help us be honest with ourselves. God, help us understand that you are a true joy promoter, and we will only find our joy in you. And I pray if there's any non-Christians in here, Lord, people that haven't put their faith and trust in you, Lord, that are trusting in their own ability to try to find joy in this earth, that they, they stop that, they repent from that, they look to you and say, I can only find joy in you, and the only way I can have a relationship with you is if I put my trust in in your Son, for what he's done for us, bringing peace between you and us, Lord. So God, I just pray that you're with us as we go our separate ways. I thank you for this time. Amen.